Okay, everybody. If you're standing, remain standing. If you're seated, stand back up on your feet. Man, it's so good to see all of you this morning. We're just about a year into this project, the New Life East Project, and I'm looking around here every Sunday morning, and I'm going, man, these are my friends. This is my family. It's been so wonderful to get to know you all over the last year. So there is um, there's just a good spirit in this house this morning. Before we open the scriptures, let's align ourselves as we do with the faith of the church, a faith that's been carried on now for 2,000 years. Say these words together with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. And he has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You can be seated. The creed says that the Spirit has spoken through the prophets. And so we're in the midst of a series now on the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament called the Everyday Prophets. We're calling them that because you know about the heavy hitters. You know about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But then we have these other prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Yeah. And they preach the gospel in their own way. Last week, I covered the book of Joel. And we've seen from week to week how these prophets build on one another in terms of their message. Hosea has this message about how the people of God were wayward, worshiping other gods, giving themselves away when they should have given themselves away just to Yahweh, an exclusive devotion like a man to a woman, a marriage relationship. They were giving themselves away to other gods, and the Lord was calling them back. And Joel then began to build on Hosea's message by showing just how the Lord operates circumstantially to get his people back. And so there's this great call in Joel to return to the Lord, to return to the Lord, to render, do you remember it? Around your heart and not your garments. Turn to the Lord. He'll be gracious and compassionate and he'll bless you and all that. But one of the things, if you read the book of Joel uh, in the time leading up to my sermon last week or coming out of it, if you read Joel or if you read Joel before in your life, one of the things that maybe you've noticed is that one of the things that Joel does not do in his book is he doesn't actually give any specific sin or issue 
that the people of God need to repent of. He just sort of opens up this space of repentance and he leaves us asking the question, well, what then do we need to repent of? And just when that question has sort of reached its peak, all of a sudden Amos comes along and Amos begins to fill in that detail. Just what do we need to repent of? What actually is the sickness that's at work in the uh, people of God that needs to be left behind, that needs to be cleansed? What does repentance look like? And so we'll be in the book of Amos. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. It's Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. If you don't have your Bibles or you're watching with us online, by the way, if you are watching online, we're so happy that you're with us this morning. Stay warm and stay safe. It's good to see everybody here in the building this morning, though. It's wonderful. Uh, So Amos, I'll be in the book of Amos chapter 5 is where I'm going to start as kind of my uh, point of uh, disembarking. And uh, then we'll get right to it. So Lord, we're so grateful to be in your presence, grateful for your love. We're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for how you've watched over us. We're grateful that you have carried us as a father carries his children all the days of our life. Our clothes haven't worn out. Our feet have not swollen. You've fed us every day just like you did with your people of God in the Old Testament. We thank you for that. And we thank you that your presence is heavy on us this morning, that you're brooding over us like a hen gathers over, broods over her chickens, her little, you're brooding over us. Your presence is here. You're protecting us and guarding us. Psalm 91 says that um, you're covering us with the shadow of your wings, that the psalmist elsewhere said that you're a rock and a refuge for us. You are all that we need this morning, and we thank you that you care about our lives. We thank you that you're speaking to us. We thank you that you're moving upon us. We thank you that you're making us new, that you're filling us with your spirit, that you're breaking the hold of sin on our lives, that you're restoring us in every way. We thank you that the resurrected Lord Jesus is in our midst this morning to cause new creation to explode upon us. You're here for that, and we're grateful. We say, let the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amos 5 and verse 18, Woe to you, says Amos, who long for the day of the Lord. Why is it that you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, the Lord says they are a stench to me. And even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, and you might know this verse, let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing Stream, Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Amos says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an important concept to the biblical mind. If you want to get to the root of the concept of the day of the Lord, really you have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. You know the story. People of God have been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. The Lord delivers them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his army are drowned in the Red Sea. And Moses and Aaron and Miriam, they stand at the shores of the Red Sea. And they sing this song, Exodus chapter 15, and verse 3. Moses says that the Lord is a warrior. Everybody say the Lord is a warrior. He's a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw the sword. My hand will destroy them. But you... Moses says, you blew with your breath and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory and working wonders? What Moses does is he looks out and he sees this thing that has happened and he doesn't just sort of, um, as many modern people would in our day, they would go, that's a fortunate accident that just kind of happened there. But Moses attributes the smashing of Pharaoh's army to the right hand of God. He says that the Lord rose up as a mighty warrior on our behalf and he broke the chariot. The, you know, I, I always want to like mix up Pharaoh and chariot here and say ferriot. And it's not a thing. That's a small animal is a ferriot. He breaks the might of Pharaoh, the chariots and the army thrown into the Red Sea. And Moses attributes that to the strength of God. And so what happens when you start reading the Old Testament is that you see that what the people of God do is they always remember this event. They remember the event when Yahweh God rose up strong on their behalf to help them and deliver them. And whenever they found themselves in trouble then, they looked back to that event and then they looked forward into history to another moment when the Lord would rise once again on their behalf and smash the armies that they were facing at that time, whatever time they were in. And this moment of God, God's resurgence among his people and in the nations, this comes to be known as the day of the Lord. Ezekiel gives great expression to it. This is Ezekiel chapter 30. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, wail and say, alas for that day. What day? Well, the day is near, the day of the what? The Lord is near. It's a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations, and a sword will come against two. Are you following along with me? Is this up on the, yeah, yeah, they're kind of due for the nations. All right, well, I'm just going to go to verse four. A sword will come against Egypt and anguish will come upon Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, her wealth will be carried away and her foundations torn down. So here's Ezekiel looking ahead to the day of the Lord. And he sees that what God's going to do is God's going to do something very similar to what he did in Exodus. That God is going to arise and he's going to confront the evil nations that are confronting Israel. Most of the time in the prophets, when you see the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is aimed at those evil people out there. But that's where Amos is so fascinating, okay? That what Amos does is he says, uh, now those of you that long for the day of the Lord, uh, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Amos says, because that day will be a day of darkness and not of light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall and he have a snake bite him. 
Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And then Isaiah or Amos goes into this great harangue against the people of God. So Amos thinks, follow me now this morning. Amos thinks that the day of the Lord is not first a problem for the nations. Okay? And this is what the people of God are very prone to do with the day of the Lord. That they'd kind of anchor themselves in this day of the Lord ideology and they'd go, we're safe, we're secure, everything is wonderful and good for us. And fortunately for us, there's a day of the Lord coming and it's going to smash all of those evil, bad people out there. And Isaiah turns it around and he says, no, the day of the Lord is not first a problem for the nations. It's first a problem for who? It's a problem for God's people. In fact, when you start reading the book of Amos, if you just start in the first chapter, the Lord, what he really does in Amos is he gathers these nations together and he begins to enter into a time of judgment. Amos, you might know if you've done any study, Amos comes from the southern kingdom of Judah. He's a prophet that emerges from this place, Tekoa. He comes to the northern kingdom of Israel and he stands really in the city square and people start gathering around him. And what Amos does is he begins to pronounce, he does pronounce judgment on the nations. And when you read through it, it's for three sins of Damascus, even four. You know, I will not relent. And the Lord describes his judgment for Damascus. And then Amos says, for three sins of Gaza, even four, the Lord will not relent. And for three sins of Tyre, even four, the Lord will not relent. And for three sins of Edom, even four. And for three sins of Ammon, even four. And for three sins of Moab, even four. For if you look on these nations, at these nations, by the way, on a map, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, here is Amos standing in the midst of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's going, hey guys, let's talk about all of the things that God sees that are going wrong in the world. And he begins to call out the great enemies of Israel and Judah, right? Moab, Edom, Damascus, Ammon, and it goes around a great circle like this. And by the time Amos gets here to Moab, all of a sudden what he's done is he's called out all of the classic enemies of the people of God. And then he continues. And you know who he continues with? Judah. Now this is, there's some layering here. It would be a little bit like if a prophet from Texas went up to New York City and he gathered some people around him and he started calling out, you know, all of America's enemies, you know, and saying that judgment was coming upon all of those nations. And then this prophet from Texas with all of the New Yorkers around him says, and by the way, the Lord's also judging Texas. And all the New Yorkers go, yeah, it's about time, you know, right? He works through this little judgment of Judah And then, and then, there's yet one more group of people that Amos calls judgment down upon. Do you know who it is? It's Israel. But the longest sequence of judgment at the beginning of Amos is reserved for the northern kingdom of Israel. It's as though, if you're looking at it on a map, that all of a sudden what happens in all of this day of the Lord talk and all of this judgment talk that what you see is that God's people are directly in the crosshairs of Amos's prophetic harangue. Are you following me? The day of the Lord in Amos's vision is not first a problem for all of those people out there. 
It's first a problem for the house of God. And I think that God is saying something to us in that. That he wants us to become circumspect in the way that we think about his judgment. As it says in the scriptures, it's time for judgment to begin where? Yeah, in the house of God. It begins with us first. And I have, um, I have four kids. My oldest is 14. They go on down to eight years old. My little son Liam was sitting with me here on the front row. And I don't know where he went. And I'm sure he'll be fine. <laughs> He's among friends, we you know. <laughs> My kids have learned this lesson. You know this as a parent, if you've got multiple children, that this happens a thousand times a day. Then one of your kids will come up from the basement or, you know, down from upstairs, whatever the kids are playing. And this has happened so many times in our parenting lives is that the kids will say to us, you know, Dad, and somebody with the tears in their eyes, you know, Dad, Ethan has done this horrible thing to me. There's this long description of the bad thing that Ethan has done, you know. They're pleading with mom and dad for justice, right? Arise, mom and dad. <laughs> come to my defense. Awake, take up shield and buckler. Rise and come to my... That's what they want from their parents. They want us to rise up and lay the smack down on their siblings. And of course, you know this if you have kids, and even if you don't, you can intuit it, that we would be wildly irresponsible parents if we took every complaint like that at face value and did exactly what they wanted us to do, you know? So little five-year-old Liam comes up complaining about, you know, Gabe. Dad, you know, you got to do this thing about Gabe. What? How could Gabe have done this awful thing? I must execute vengeance upon Gabe in exactly the way that Liam... No! What do you do? This is what we do. We go, oh, really? That's so interesting. It's not that, it's not that the thing that they're carrying is unimportant. It's that we want to know more about that thing before we enter into judgment. Right? So we'll go, okay, well, Liam, you stay right here. Uh, Gabe or Ethan, you come upstairs. And Gabe or Ethan come upstairs and go, hey, you know, Liam said that you did this, this, and this. Can you give us a little bit of context? What was actually going on there? And they start describing, and you remember the verse in Proverbs, that the first to present their case seems right. Until what? Somebody else comes forward and questions it. So all of a sudden, I'm talking to Ethan or Gabe or Bella or whoever, and now the story is starting to fill out a little bit more. And as often as not, and I mean this, it turns out that the aggrieved party usually has some responsibility in the matter that they are not willing to fess up to. And so now, all of a sudden, we start, you know, seeing the situation with more depth and complexity than the original aggrieved party wanted us to see it with. Because, of course, the original aggrieved party, all they wanted is they just wanted the smack to be laid down on somebody. But we're not that way. If we're going to be parents of justice, what we must do is gather all of the facts and then we must suss things out the way that they need to be. I think that something like that is happening here with God's people. I think that as God's people... What we most often want is we want the day of the Lord to fall on all of those people out there. And what the Lord does is he kind of turns the mirror on us and he goes, hey, why don't you take a look in the mirror? Why don't you spend some time meditating on who you are and what's going on with you? And what we have learned with our kids is that over the years, as we've gotten more careful about dealing out judgment, they also have gotten a little bit more circumspect about complaining about their siblings, right? Right? 
because they know that they usually have some responsibility in the matter, don't they? This, I think, is directly reflected in the teaching of Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. You know the teaching. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be what? Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, what happens? You get judged. And with the measure that you use, what happens? It's measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention, attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, isn't that fascinating? Don't judge, or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And then Jesus goes on to tell this story about seeing a speck in somebody else's eye, but you don't notice the plank in your own eye. I've thought a lot about this passage of Scripture in my walk with Jesus, my year serving the Lord. And I think that when Jesus talks about having the plank in your own eye, I think that it is certainly about the sins in our own lives that we have not fessed up to, you know. And so it's important for us that we need to go and we need to deal with whatever is going on in our own lives. But I actually think as I've read this over and over again and meditated on it, and also as I've lived before the Lord, I think that what I'm becoming more aware of now than I've ever been aware of is that the thing that needs to get removed, like the plank that's in our eye, is actually the desire to judge other people in the first place. That the most significant sin that needs to be repented of when it comes to our relationships with other people individually, but also our relationship with groups of people out there, is the most significant sin is our desire to see judgment visited upon them, our desire to judge them. Okay, great. I'm glad that we're all in agreement here. I think that's actually the most significant thing. But here is the thing to notice about the passage. Is that Jesus doesn't just stop at saying, Hey, why is it that you're paying attention to the speck in your brother's eye? Go remove the plank from your own eye and then be on your merry way. Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye. Think about it. Take the desire to judge other people out of your own eye, out of your own life, out of your own heart. And then what happens? Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. It's not as though Jesus is saying that the speck in the other person's eye doesn't matter. What he's saying is that until we've dealt with our desire to judge other people, the way in which we make ourselves the self-appointed judge and jury of other human beings, until we've dealt with that, there is no way that we can possibly be helpful to other people. Are you with me? Because the truth of the matter is that Seeing judgment visited upon the people that we're frustrated with or we dislike is not actually helpful to them. All right? It doesn't, the person who has a speck in their eye is not helped by having a divine lightning bolt fall on the eye. 
Are you with me? And now all we've done is now we've, you know, that poor little eye that had the little, I got an eyelash in my eye. Well, what we need to do is just gouge that sucker out, be done with it. That's what most of us want. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that speck actually matters to the eye. And I want you to help me remove it. But you can't remove it until you've dealt with a desire to strike their eye out. Until your heart has been filled with a genuine desire to love and to bless and to heal, you won't see clearly enough to be able to go, here, here, come on over. Open that, open, real wide, real wide. Here we go. We're called to be healers, okay? We're called to enter into the problems of the world. We're called to enter into all the craziness, all the stuff that's happening out there. It does matter to God. But there's no way for us to enter into it meaningfully, spiritually, okay? There's no way to enter into it with a right heart unless we deal with our own stuff first. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about a great story probably 1,600 or so years ago, about a man that was caught in sin in this community. And everybody gathered around this man to heap judgment upon him. And there was a particular holy man that lived in that community. He was a monk. And they called this monk, the monk's name was Moses. They called Moses to come to that place of judgment, to enter into a time of trying to figure out what this guy did and, you know, what should be the punishment upon this guy. And Moses, the story says, he just wouldn't come. Why everybody's getting it together to judge this person? Moses is like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so finally, the priest who's overseeing this process of discipline for this individual sends somebody to Moses and says, Moses, you have to come. And so Moses gets up from his little cell and he fills a jug that had a hole in it with water. And he walks, <laughs> he walks to the place of judgment. And as he's walking, the water is leaking out behind him. And when he gets there, he's got just a little bit of water left in it finally all drains out. And he's doing this as an object lesson, you know. And they say to him, Moses, what are you doing? What is the point of this? And he says, my sins run out behind me and I can't see them. And yet I'm called to judge this person? Who, who am I to do that? Who are any of us to do that? That we're carrying around all of these sins and all of these blind spots and yet we think that we can be the judge and jury for all of these other people. And so the thing is emptied out and the story goes that that group that was there to heap condemnation upon this individual, it broke up in that moment. But the paradox of Moses's life is that Moses was actually one of the most spiritually helpful individuals in all of that time period. I don't exactly know how to describe what's going on here, but what I do know and what I think Amos is teaching us and Jesus is teaching us is that that moment when we become circumspect. That moment when we all of a sudden realize that the day of the Lord needs to hit us first, okay? The judgment of God needs to fall upon us first. Whatever happens in that place of our becoming undone by the judgment and mercy of God, it actually renews us and restores us so that we can enter into relationship with other people and be genuinely helpful to them. Are we on the same page this morning, brothers and sisters? I had a conversation with the guy last Sunday after the service. We talked about repentance and the need for repentance in the church. And I was walking out to my car and we were walking together. And he said to me, Andrew, he's a great message. I love that. I really resonate with what you're saying. He said, but I think the part that troubles me is that if all we do in the church is we just kind of look at ourselves and repent and blah, blah, blah. He goes, there still is all of the 
Like all the problems in the world still remain, right? There's still war and racism and there's still people groups hating each other and there's still economic oppression and exploitation and there's still, there's still injustice everywhere. And so what are you saying? Are you saying that we're supposed to retreat from the world? And I said to him, no, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that unless we enter into a time of repentance for ourselves, we'll never have the spiritual wherewithal to be able to enter into these things in the right way. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, the psalmist says. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Our doing what Amos says, turning the mirror upon ourselves, is how we come to a place of clean hands and a pure heart. With this past week, we celebrated on Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And every year on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, one of the things that I do is I'll go back and I'll read his letter from a Birmingham jail. But he was so frustrated with what he termed white moderates who weren't getting involved in the struggle for civil rights. And the th- part that gripped me this week is I made my little pilgrimage through that letter. It's a brilliant letter, by the way. If you have not read it, go meditate on it for a year. It'll help you. And as I was meditating on it this week, one of the things that caught my attention that I think I had not really noticed before was Dr. King talking about the process that he and, and those who are struggling for civil, civil rights with him, the process that they would walk through whenever they would engage an area of injustice in a city. He said, first what we'll do is when we go to the city, we gather up all of the relevant facts so that we know what happened. We want to make sure that we've talked to as many parties as we can talk to, to try to assess what's going on in the city and all of that. Then he said, we enter into a time of negotiation, see if we can talk to the powers that be and try to create a more equitable and just situation. So step number two, gathering facts. Step number, or step number one, gathering facts. Step number two, negotiation. But then he said, step number three is this. He said, we enter into a time of purification. Well, what we do is we humble ourselves before the Lord. We pray. We fast. We check our motives. We make sure that we're not entering into this angry. That we're not entering into this with a desire for vengeance that we're not entering into this because we want to see God clobber somebody, that we enter into this with one desire, and it's a desire to see the kingdom of God come in a way that looks like black people and white people getting along and enjoying the beloved community, a kind of brotherhood that's only possible in the gospel. It's not just about entering into the struggle, nor is it about running away, but it's about entering into the struggle of our day. How? In the right way, guys. From a place of repentance and from a place of humility. Christianity is not quietism. All right? Christianity is not us running off into some little corner and going, there's all this bad stuff happening in the world. La, 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 la. Get them, God. <laughs> it's not about that. Christianity is a process of us saying, Lord, would you purify us? And we see that there's a lot of hell happening in the world. Would you strip hell out of our hearts first? We see that there's a lot of brokenness happening in the world. Would you heal the brokenness in our hearts first? 
We see that there's a lot of chaos happening in the world. Would you heal the chaos in our hearts first? We see that there's sin happening in the world. Would you take the sin out of our hearts first? We see that judgment is raging everywhere in the world. Would you take the judgment out of our hearts first? And when all of those things have been stripped away from us, then what happens? We enter into the world with the healing of God. We enter into the world with the love of God. We enter into the world with a word of judgment and justice that's delivered not like a blunt force object, but like a surgeon's scalpel that we cut it out. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? That's how we're called to enter into the world. I want to say to you this morning that only a people fully submitted to God can bring healing to the world, which raises the question, what does it mean to be fully submitted to God? Look back down at Amos 5, and with this we'll start making our way to communion. Verse 21, the Lord says to his people, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me, Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let what? Justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Justice and righteousness. Justice. And righteousness, righteousness in the Hebrew scriptures is that state of being where everything is ordered the way that it needs to be ordered. Rich and poor, powerful and not powerful, that society is ordered the way that God intends. And justice is those specific acts that bring that state of being to fruition. And in the mind of Amos, justice rolling on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Do you know what that means in his mind? It means that those who have look out for those that have not. But Amos says you want to be rightly ordered to the God of Israel, where the God of Israel is a God that has all. The God of Israel is a God with infinite ability. The God of Israel is the God who is fullness in and of himself. And what the God of Israel has done throughout history is he's entered into places where human life was degraded and he's lifted people up. And if you want to be his people, then you're going to enter into places where human life is degraded and you're going to lift them up. And if you do not do that, Amos says, your religious assemblies and festivals are a stench in the nostrils of God. Why? Because your worship and your deeds don't match up. All right? We, and now I want to say this with all clarity and all the gentleness that I can think of, okay? One of the issues that we deal with in our time as the church in the United States of America is that sometimes we are more known for defending our turf than we are for defending the rights of other people. And that's a sword, I I try to be an equal opportunity offender here, That's a sword that cuts across both political parties and all ideologies. We have a reputation for being a people that are more concerned with protecting our little place in this country than we are with paying attention to the rights of other people. And it's one of the things that robs us of credibility is that the world looks at us and they go, all they're looking out for is themselves. 
When they vote and they raise their voices about these issues, what they're trying to do is they're trying to just protect their little place in the world. They don't really care that much about us, which is a disgrace to us because we are worshipers of the God who, when he entered into time among us, did nothing for himself. But everything that he did was for us. When Jesus lived and moved and walked among us, he wasn't concerned to protect his little place in the world, was he? But he gave himself unto the world to lift the world up and to make the world whole. And we are his people, the people of Jesus Christ, just to the extent that we do that. Can I get some amens in the house, brothers and sisters? So when we come into the house of God, what we're doing is we're letting God turn the mirror on us. We're not coming into the house of God pointing the finger at the world and say that those people out there are wrecking everything. What we're doing when we come to the house of God is we're humbling ourselves before the Lord and allowing him to lift us up in due time. And we are pleading with him to make us his people afresh once again. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it so beautifully when he said this, pure and undefiled religion is this. To what? To look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When we come to worship, we're coming to that. Can we stand up on our feet this morning? See, we're asking for the Lord to make us new this morning. We're asking for the Lord to search our hearts. And now as you begin, we begin to prepare ourselves for communion. I want you now just to begin to search your own heart and search your own life. I want you to begin to think about the places where you have thirsted for the judgment of God upon other people and you have not searched your own spirit. You have not humbled yourself before the Lord. I want you to search your life for those places where you have been more concerned with protecting yourself than entering into the needs of other people. But the psalmist said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my innermost thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're doing this morning, Lord. That's what we're doing. We're asking that the power of your Holy Spirit would fall upon us. We're asking that you would move upon us in a fresh way. We're asking that you'd restore us as your people. We're asking that you would renew us in the love for you and the love for other people. We're asking for all of those things. And we are not coming this morning because everybody else is a problem. We're coming this morning acknowledging that we are part of the problem. And we need you, the great solution of our lives. So come, we pray. And now we make this our prayer of repentance before you. But we say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we have not loved you with our whole hearts we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son Jesus Christ have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name amen and now I say to you, this is the gospel of the Lord, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
For through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The spirit of the living Lord Jesus is among you and among us this morning to cleanse us and to make us new, to make us his people again by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you can receive that this morning, brothers and sisters, let's give God praise. Now let's sing this song in response and Pastor Colin's going to lead us to the table. We are waiting. We are watching. We won't move without we won't move without you. We are hoping and anticipating. We won't move without you. We won't move without you.
respond to this church. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you do that this morning? Would you give God praise? Thank you, Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, what, of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you proclaim the mystery of our faith together, that Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Jesus, we come before you today. God, we feel you working on our hearts. God, this morning through this message, I feel you working on my heart. Day of the Lord, would you, would you come and first deal with me? This is us doing business with you, Lord. We're seeking reconciliation. We're seeking repentance. God, we're acknowledging the wrongs that we have done. Church, would you take a minute just in your, in your seat where you stand? Would you, would you apologize? Would you ask God to reveal in your heart, Lord, what you, what you need forgiveness for today? Come, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God to receive the bread together. Let's receive this cup together too. We respond in singing the doxology. This is a time where we want to hear your voices. You know this, the doxology's been around for a long time. So would you, would you lead each other as we sing together? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hope. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Extend your hands like this. Receive, receive. Just in this moment, take it just a couple moments yet before you head out and receive the grace and the mercy and the peace of the Lord. The grace that cleanses you, the mercy, the mercy that makes your face shine again, the peace that puts your life back together again, makes you whole. You are being sent into the world, brothers and sisters. You are being sent. And so as you go from this place, I pray over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team, Dave and Robin Miller and team, to come up. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, Be sure to see us in the lobby on the way out. Sign up for a team. Grab a little popcorn. Or else, as Colin said, you'll get drafted onto a team, I guess, next week. That was, okay, well, that's fine. And uh, stay safe out there in case the roads are icy. And go Packers. All right, we'll see you next Sunday.